0: Welcome to episode 17 of Shellshot. This week, we'll be traveling around the world to look at international skepticism, including an interview with Turkish blogger and skeptical activist Dr. Isil Arajan. Later, we'll have a science report about a man in China who claims he can walk on water. And we'll end this episode with a first some feedback from our listeners. Marilyn will answer some questions that listeners have sent in using our new SpeakPipe feature on our Facebook page. So if you've checked your bags and your boarding pass is in hand, brace yourselves for shell shock. Given the fact that we live in the United States and that the U.S. is probably a little more likely than most other countries to get media attention, especially when we do something wrong, it's easy to see how American skeptics can become a little myopic when thinking about the sorts of woo and non-scientific practices that we battle. It's worth reminding ourselves from time to time that the lack of critical thinking is a human quality, not just an American one, so this week's topic of international skepticism. Marilyn and I thought it would be a good idea to break out of our shells a bit and do some research on the kinds of charlatanism and quackery and just plain nonsense that we find elsewhere in the world. And it's not only proven interesting, but the information I've collected drives home the idea that no matter where you go in the world, people are pretty much the same.
1: And that should make us feel either... Worse or better, I don't know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe equal parts of both. So uh, let's just go through a few popular skeptic targets and see what we find when we look around the world. Of course, I'd be remiss if I left out homeopathy. In the United States, according to a 2008 article in the New York Post, over 38% of adults and nearly 12% of children use some form of alternative medicine every year. And all you have to do is walk into a CVS or other pharmacy to see that, you know, that's pretty much everywhere. Um, It's a pretty large category, this idea of alternative medicine. It includes all kinds of things like herbal products like echinacea and ginseng, chiropractic, or even something as vague as deep breathing exercises and meditation and yoga. But when you look specifically at homeopathic medicine, the U.S. just doesn't really have the numbers. The CDC reported in a 2009 survey that only about 0.6%, 0.6%, mind you, of Americans actually sought treatment from a homeopath that year. So they might be purchasing the odd homeopathic concoction from their local pharmacy, but Americans aren't using homeopathy as their primary means of health care and treatment. Mm. But take France. Compare our point six percent homeopathy use with France's whopping ten point two percent. Whoa! And by uh, children age zero to four years, it's even higher at eighteen percent. Oh no. Yeah, so kids are getting the brunt of this, and they have no choice.
1: No, right. That's their parents giving them that stuff, I would imagine.
0: Right. A recent survey in France showed that about 33% of patients had at least one reimbursement for a homeopathic prescription, and half of those who saw a doctor in the past year had three or more.
1: Oh, so it's covered by insurance? Yes. Ooh,
0: The statistics on French healthcare professionals shows why this is the case, with nearly 95% of general practitioners, dermatologists, and pediatricians prescribing homeopathic remedies. Whoa. It's everywhere. It's sad. Yeah. Homeopathy accounted for about 5% of the total number of drug units prescribed by healthcare professionals in France that year. That's a lot of money. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, with 0.6% of Americans, it's $2.9 billion a year. France is considerably smaller than the United States, but still, somebody's raking in a lot of money over there.
1: Yeah, and that area of Europe seems to also, you know, a lot of homeopathic uh, belief seems to be concentrated over there. Because I know, uh, you know, for example, England is very entrenched.
0: Yeah, as is Germany to some degree Mm -hmm. as well. So, yeah, you're right. That, that part of Western Europe, very mm-hmm. much into the homeopathic prescriptions. This same French survey, by the way, showed that more than half of the homeopathic prescriptions were co-prescribed with actual medicine. And I think that's quite telling mm-hmm. because it's good for the patient in the short term, but probably only serves to encourage belief in homeopathy because the real medicine might make them feel better. Right. And if they're taking it along with a homeopathic medicine, or remedy, I should say, or Concoction, then they probably will at least uh, apply part of their recovery to the homeopathy.
1: Yeah, it, they must say that to themselves, the two of them had to work in conjunction, right? Uh, you know, otherwise the doctor would have just given them one.
0: Exactly. So, so you know, with homeopathy, I guess Americans aren't doing so bad in comparison to certain parts of the world like Europe. Um, cryptozoology. This is the uh, belief in animals that probably don't exist. You know, unicorns, for instance, that sort of thing. Uh, In the United States, the Washington Post recently did a story on a survey done by researchers at Chapman University in which they found that U.S. respondents were just as likely to believe in Bigfoot as they are to accept the Big Bang Theory. If it has big in it, right? (laughs) Bigfoot and Big Bang. It has to be true. They both hovered around 25%, which is too high for Bigfoot and too low for the Big Bang Theory. Yes. Wow. But Bigfoot's not the only monster out there. Uh, Take, for instance, in Puerto Rico. Belief in the existence of unsubstantiated, unlikely creatures applies there, too. Uh, The Chupacabra.
1: I never saw it when I lived there, though.
0: No? No, no. I I missed
1: it. I missed it. I missed it.
0: So chupacabra actually literally refers to goat sucker, and it's pretty widely accepted in certain regions in Puerto Rico, uh, since the popularizing of this creature that supposedly attacks, I guess, mostly livestock and sucks out their Mm -hmm. blood.
1: Yeah, it's mostly in the mountains, I see. Uh, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, sightings have been spreading far and wide uh, throughout mostly Spanish-speaking countries like the Dominican Republic, Argentina, Bolivia, Chile, Colombia, Honduras, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Panama, Peru, Brazil, and parts of the United States and Mexico.
1: Mm. Wow, these goat-sucking um, creatures that can swim. Yeah. I guess from island to island, and <laughs> country <laughs> to country. I don't know what's going on there.
0: Maybe they're... Uh, on you know jets or something <laughs> and Traveling all around And we just don't notice them Stowaways, yeah Maybe so <laughs> um, Skeptic author Ben Radford Wrote a book in 2011 Tracking the Chupacabra In which he presents Some pretty damning evidence That the first and most widely cited uh, Sighting by Madeline Tolentino In Puerto Rico Was probably based on a movie Called Species Mm and he believes that she came to believe that the creature being shown in this film was, actually existed, and that it existed in Puerto Rico. And I haven't read his book, but apparently a lot of skeptics are sort of nodding their heads and saying, yeah, that sounds about right. So it's pretty damning evidence that this one person that supposedly was the nexus of all of this probably had her own issues going on. Or something.
1: <laughs> you you got to admit, though, it's a great name I love that saying it chupacabra
0: it really is yeah and if it you know encourages people to learn a little Spanish what the hell right
1: right I thought that if I'm remembering correctly uh, a couple years ago um, they had found like one of those animals that carcasses that hmm. look like that like a, it's an alien kind of creature and people were saying that that it was proof of a chupacabra I believe it was in Mexico. But I could be completely making that up, so sorry if I am.
0: (laughs) Well, I do remember reading, and I don't have in my notes here, that uh, at least one theory is that it could be some some sort of wild dogs or Mm -hmm. maybe Mm -hmm. wolves or something that have a skin condition. And I know that sounds made up, but apparently they have some evidence of this because supposedly they're kind of hairless, Mm -hmm. these chupacabra. And they have really thick skin and they look a little wild. And if you saw a wolf or, you know, any kind of canine-like animal out there and it had psoriasis and its skin was really thick and sort of looked unhealthy. And And you're seeing it sort of from
1: far away. It would be really
0: creepy. You're right. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen a shaved animal or a wet cat or something. You almost can't recognize them without the fur. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. So it makes perfect sense that some of these sightings may actually be real creatures that may be eating you know, dead livestock to stay alive, and then right. these superstitious people go crazy with it. Yeah,
1: and most of these animals are nocturnal as well, so you're going to see them you know, in the, at nighttime when our vision's not as good either. Yeah, so.
0: absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, moving along, I wanted to talk about a final category here, faith healing. Faith healing in the United States was once much more prevalent than it is now. Uh, you know, now it's in the 21st century, it's mostly minority people who turn to this. You'll still find Christians and others who pray for each other's health or, you know, New Agers that send good vibes or something. Yeah. Uh, but you don't generally see people in large numbers giving up their high blood pressure medication for the laying on of hands.
1: No. No. But I do, I do get the occasional Facebook request, you know, please pray for so-and-so. Yeah. So... Uh, a little different than
0: yeah, you know? relatively <laughs> harmless. You yeah, know? although there was that study that showed that heart patients who were prayed for did worse than people <laughs> who weren't prayed for. That's probably not good. Not good. Maybe God just doesn't like to be pushed around. Uh, yeah don't tell me when to save people here i'll make him a little worse um in brazil though this stuff is just out of control apparently i was reading online today that in some of the poorest parts of countries like brazil where there's an almost complete lack of regulation it's allowing these self-appointed religious leaders to rake in millions every year by claiming to have the gift of healing So, sick and injured and even dying people are coming to them. The World Health Organization reports that these folks in Brazil give between 10 and 30 percent of their yearly income for the chance to be blessed by these charlatans.
1: Oh, wow. That's a lot.
0: And that's just during the healings. That's not even counting the tithing that they do during regular religious you know, ceremonies and meetings. Um, there's a pastor named Eduardo Aruda who was featured in a Nightline episode recently, which we'll link to in the show notes. He's a great example of just how easy it is to make money this way in Brazil these days. Probably the most bizarre part for me, by the way, was when he had people lining up to give him their offerings, you know, these wads of cash that they were dropping in front of him. And he would, as they walked by quickly spray them with a so-called blessed oil from a plastic spray bottle. <laughs> I mean talk about no ceremony. You want a little bit of pomp and circumstance and ritual. He couldn't even be bothered to anoint them. He just sprayed them and kept them moving along like an assembly line in a factory. How could
1: Oh wow. I just how do I don't know how these people live with themselves. I don't either. That I mean that this sounds like a true psychopath. No right. empathy, no, you know, it, no conscience.
0: If you have a little knowledge of psychology <laughs> and no soul, <laughs> no ethics whatsoever, you too can be a millionaire. Yes. Uh, in that same report, by the way, they showed a new trend in Brazil: the child healers. Um, it's a pretty easy gig, you know, but the competition's getting tough, and so everyone's trying to look for a new hook to get attention in this saturated market. So some are starting to claim that their children have the gift of healing, especially in one area called Sao Gonchalo, I think it's pronounced, where it's estimated they have more churches per capita than anywhere else in Latin America.
1: Wow. And that's, that's saying, saying something. <laughs>
0: that's definitely saying something their most popular child healer is a 10 year old named alani santos whose father no big surprise is a pastor the video in the show notes includes footage of an interview with a young man from croatia who visits alani for a healing of his paralysis that he received after a gunshot to the head and i'm sure you can guess whether or not his paralysis was healed that night
1: uh ding 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 yes (laughs)
0: no Uh, he still said he was happy he came though and alani's father assured the cameras that some healings don't happen right away so this young man could still get his blessing or not probably not
1: that's so sad
0: i know it's really crazy and i think that's uh an example of the kinds of things that take advantage of people who are maybe poor and have less education but that's not necessarily always the case and we have all kinds of evidence that well-educated people in europe in the united states and elsewhere also fall prey to all kinds of nonsense so yeah uh bullshit is international ladies and gentlemen
1: Sad. sad so
0: sad what did you find
1: Well, I was looking into something in the Japanese culture Ah. that is called uh, Japanese blood typing. What? Yes. And um, I guess it became really popular early on in the early 1900s, right after blood types were identified. And um, one Japanese doctor identified a link between blood types and character. Later on, early in, in like, 1927, somebody went on to publish a study of temperament through blood type. And it became really popular in Japan. And they even used it, uh, the military government used it to breed a better soldier based on blood type. Mm -hmm. So uh, after scientific evidence came out, and, and, well, I'm sorry, lack of scientific evidence came out (laughs) in the late 1930s, the trend kind of faded. But in 1970, a journalist who had no medical or scientific background, like, you know, that, that happens a lot. But, you know, like this Chupacabra woman, you know, it's just one, one nexus mm-hmm. of a person who doesn't uh, uh, have the background in whatever they're touting. Um it revived the trend. And so now there's a blood typing craze in Japan. Uh, daytime TV shows often offer blood horoscopes. Uh, more than 90% of Japanese people know their blood type. So um, I do you know your blood type? Shelby? No. No. I have no idea. I did it once in a biology class in high school. So I believe I'm type A negative, but that I you know I could be misremembering, but that's that's the only reason I, I I know that is because I did it in, in biology class.
0: Well, given my attitude, a lot of people say I have B negative.
1: <laughs> <laughs> good one, good one. Oh, I like it. Um, so anyway, um, blood type is um, in the Japanese baseball cards. The baseball players list each of the players' blood type. Wow. Yeah, and uh, unfortunately. Um, the Japanese women's softball team used blood type theory to customize each player's training for the Olympics and they won gold at the Olympics in Beijing. So it kind of reinforced their belief. Um, in 2008, uh, the, there were four, uh, books that reached the top 10 bestseller list in 2008 in Japan. And of course, one, each book is for each of the blood types. And it's an instruction manual for people with whatever type blood. Um, there are blood type soft drinks. Now they're not made with blood, but they are made for, uh, school girls to drink. They're mostly purchased by schoolgirls, and they, um, uh, They're sold to specific blood types. So for example, type B soda reportedly increases the mental stamina of people who use a lot of brain power because they're always curious.
0: Oh, of course. Yes.
1: Apple flavored uh, type O soda has multivitamins to help burn energy more efficiently. Um, The Japanese purchase almost 2 billion blood type condoms every year. (laughs) Not sure what that has to do with blood type, but for example, type A condoms are pink and thin. Type B condoms are ribbed. Type AB condoms are covered with diamond shaped studs and purchasers of type O condoms are told that women with AB blood are a hot love and adds the key is how tolerant you can be of her selfishness.
0: So, okay, wait. Oh, right.
1: I, I have no idea what that means. So
0: many questions. Yes. So many, So many inappropriate questions yes. come to mind. And unfortunately, so I don't when have you the buy, answer. say, a type A, B, negative condom or whatever, is it your blood type or your partner's?
1: I, I don't know. I okay, do, we I, need to
0: get that down before we yeah. start investing in this. Yes.
1: <laughs> I do know <laughs> that um, the Japanese are encouraged when they go on dating sites to put their blood type. So... I can imagine that if you're on a, you know, on a dating site, you would know the person's blood type, so that you know doesn't narrow down for me if you're buying the condoms for your type or for the other person's type.
0: Do you know what this reminds me of? And I know you're too young, but there will be people of a certain age listening to this who will know what I'm talking about. In the 70s, there was a movie starring the amazing Stalker Channing called The Mighty Pisces. <laughs> and if you haven't seen that, everyone, you've got to look it up. Everybody who's anybody in... B movie 70s stardom is in this film. And it's amazingly bad and fun. And stockard Channing plays an astrologer who creates a basketball team who are all Pisces, and she, along with, you know, her amazing mystical astrology gifts, take them to stardom in sports by <laughs> reading their horoscopes throughout their games, etc. It's a lot of fun to watch. It and sounds doing that's... the same thing with blood types.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Wow.
0: Well, it certainly uh, allows us to dip our toes into the pool of bullshit from around the world, looking at all this information. Um, Later on, we have an interview, by the way, with Ishil Arjan, who is from Turkey originally, and she's going to tell us about some of the uh, not-so-skeptical stuff that happens in her home country and um, how she and her husband and others have battled against those kinds of beliefs. So maybe we can get to that inter- interview now.
1: Yeah. Looking forward to it.
0: Online with me now is Dr. Ishil Arjan. Ishil is a graduate of Aegean University School of Medicine in Turkey and also holds a degree in healthcare administration from the California State University. She serves as a board member of the Bay Area Skeptics and is the founder and author of Yalan Sevar, a very popular Turkish skeptical website. Dr. Arjan is a devoted science advocate, delivering public talks about science and skepticism, contributing to webzines as author and editor, and volunteering as a Turkish translator for various TED Talks. She's agreed to come on the show to discuss this week's topic of international skepticism, and to teach us about how she and others battle various myths, cultural traditions, and other non-skeptical beliefs and behaviors in her home country of Turkey. Dr. Arjan, welcome to Shellshoft.
2: Hi, Sheldon. Thanks for inviting me.
0: So let's start out with a bit of a cultural lesson. Maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit about Turkey in case they don't know about it, its demographics and relevant history and all of that.
2: Sure. Um, Turkey is a Middle Eastern country. We act as a bridge, not only culturally, but also geographically between um, Europe and uh, Asia. Part of its land is in Europe and the other part is in Asia. And um, um, the Turks used to be uh, nomads in mid-Asia and immigrated to the Asia Minor around thousand years ago. Um, and um, majority of the population is Muslim, but we are not as strict as other Muslim countries and it's one of the um, maybe only secular Muslim country. We have a secular constitution and no religion related uh, constitutional laws even though the current government is getting more and more religious every day and kind of um, it's creeping into people's life in a, in, a, in a form, but from a legal perspective or um, governance perspective, it's a secular government. So you can see all kinds of people. Uh, you will see very secular looking people and you'll see very religious looking people living all together in the same country.
0: Well, I think when a lot of people, at least in the United States, think of Turkey, um, they know that it's somewhere Middle Eastern and they imagine a country that's a lot like a and Afghanistan where women are subjugated and religion you know dictates people's lives and so so, uh, you sort of covered it but what I wanted to uh, talk about was it that's not exactly the case right
2: that's not exactly the case uh, but um, I should also point out that it changes a lot depending on which region you are in Uh Turkey is a large country and um, so the the proximity to Europe and Western culture has an effect on daily life. So the Western um, cities and regions are a little bit more, I I don't like the word, but Westernized, I should say. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you'll see um, the same sort of clothes and, you know, habits and daily life. People go to work and get out and go to happy hour, drink a couple of drinks and, Uh, enjoy themselves and watch Game of Thrones or whatever (laughs) (laughs) but um, when you go to further eastern parts obviously there are some um, metropolitan areas with the same sort of a secular lifestyle even in the east but uh, rural eastern areas are much more conservative Uh, people are um, people are more living conservative lives and then there you have um, still women oppressed and uh, even have like traditional killings honor killings going on unfortunately so it's it's a very big variety Uh, but i can say overall i think we're more like greece than um afghanistan definitely
0: I see. and You know, one of my favorite parts of your talk that you gave at this year's Skeptical Conference uh, was when you talked about some of the traditions uh, and um, sort of non-scientific beliefs that go throughout uh, Turkey. And one of my favorites was the evil eye. A lot of <laughs> listeners have probably heard that term before, but what is it exactly and what role does it play in the traditional beliefs of Turks?
2: Yeah, evil eye is a very um, Turkish thing um turkey is not only country uh who has it actually even today while i was um getting into a parking lot uh, there was a woman with an evil eye bead on her around her wrist as a bracelet wow. so we had a, it was interesting she, i i have an evil eye bead on my car because i like the way they look and she was asking me like where did i get it and i was asking her where she to get it so it, it turns out she's egyptian so um egypt egypt um greece also have a similar traditions so in essence evil eye is a belief that if you, um, if someone looks at something, they find beautiful, and uh, if they envy that, uh, they will cause harm. So, for example, if a person looks at a beautiful home, uh, thinking that, oh, what a beautiful home! I- you know, I'm sorry, I don't have, I don't have as beautiful home as this was. And that home will have some misfortune happening to it, there will be a fire or something. Or if they look at a kid thinking that what a beautiful kid, I wish I had a kid like that, then the kid will fall um, sick or, uh, you know, or something will happen to him, break their leg or whatever. So that's, that's the belief. And um, they believe that uh, people who are jealous will emit some evil eye evil rays and when you have a bead uh, generally these are ceramic or actually glass beads uh, made uh, from blue glass and they look like sort of like blue iris eyeballs (laughs) in a sense Mm -hmm. and they believe if they are lying around they will um, actually act like a uh, lightning rods and will uh, concentrate these evil rays and prevent them from getting to the kid or the home or, uh, or your car and will prevent harm. So, um, a lot of people uses them as, as a superstition, but a lot of people also uses them because it's a, it's a nice ceramic art form and there are a lot of artists who are coming up with nice uh, different kinds of evil eye beads and I have one of those. Uh, so, um, and uh, it's it's very common in Turkey. You'll see them everywhere in all the shops, cars, homes, on people as a, you know, jewelry.
0: So, you know, not very different in some ways from a lucky rabbit's foot or you know, a four-leaf clover or something, people may have them but not necessarily believe in them.
2: Right, exactly. I mean, I I totally don't believe that, but I have two evil eye beads, and one of them a beautiful glasswork made by a glass artist, handmade by a glass artist. So I love the way they look. They are beautiful blue color and layers of different glasses stick together. So a lot of people will have them, not necessarily meaning they believe this.
0: Right. So in addition to the evil eye, another familiar tradition found in Turkey is that of fortune-telling. But maybe you can talk a little bit about how fortune-tellers ply their trade in Turkey.
2: Sure. Um, fortune-telling, I think, is common everywhere in the world. And people just use whatever medium is most available to them. Uh, in Turkey, because we have Turkish coffee, we use Turkish coffee. Uh, Turkish coffee is very common. It's served after um, every uh, every lunch and dinner. If you have had Turkish coffee, you would know um, it is cooked uh, by mixing a very fine powdered coffee with water and both of them boil together so you get this like boiled coffee with a powdered, sugar, powdered um, coffee uh, in it and when you start to drink it it precipitates to the bottom so by the time you finish the drinkable part um, there is like a little muddy like uh, coffee ground um, left at the bottom of the cup right. uh, so what people do is they will flip the cup uh and we'll put it on a saucer upside down and wait until it cools off uh while it cools off this like muddy like um coffee precipitate will start to slide off from the bottom of the cup and will form shapes as it dries out and um, after the cup uh, gets cold the person who's going to tell the fortune will pick it up uh you know and then we'll we'll look at the shapes that the coffee uh curd created uh in the in the cop and will tell a story by looking at these shapes. Mostly they see like roads and, you know, like rabbits and gifts and so um it's it's another way of uh, fortune telling by looking at a bizarre shape like inkblot test in a
0: sense. <laughs> and probably a lot like the inkblot test, people sort of see what they want to see and maybe there's a shape that looks rather like Snoopy or a dragon or something and they just see that because that's what they're expecting to see.
2: Right. I mean, they often see a lot of roads and they'll say, you'll go over a, over a water, uh, you'll travel over a water, which is very, very likely if you're living in Istanbul because you cross Bosphorus Bridge like two times a day, generally, across Asia and Europe. Uh, and they will see a lot of fish, which means good luck. They'll see a lot of gifts and evil eyes and, you know, people talking about you and, you know... Um and a lot of roads because when the coffee travels down it creates a lines. So
0: <laughs> Yeah. Son of a gun, she was right. <laughs> a road. Exactly. There's also, uh, I would say, some rather uh, unusual or even bizarre traditions that are found in Turkey, such as the way that Turks go about uh, performing what we might call exorcisms. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that and the dangers involved in this.
2: Sure. Um, so in 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 Turkey, because majority of the po- population is Muslim, uh, we don't believe in spirits. But um, the belief is that there are jinns out there and they're kind of like equivalent of spirits in the Western world. Jinns are made of uh, fire, and uh, they can be evil, good, or neutral. And they uh, inhabit the world, but they're in an unseen dimension. Um, So people believe that they are possessed by jinns when they fall um, sick. uh, And they also believe that jinns can play misfortune. Jinns jinns can uh, give misfortune to a to people, uh, they can prevent them from, you know, getting a successful job or getting a good marriage and, you know, um, or f- make them sick. Uh, so what they do is when, when they believe that a somebody actually is haunted by a jinn, they will have that person to go through a molten lead ceremony. Uh, and recently I learned that there is a name for this because I learned that it was also um, common in med- medieval Europe at Sometimes and it's the other name is molibdomancy, which is very cool. <laughs> so I'm going to use wow. that going forward uh, but the, re- the reason that we call this molten lead is because um, It's it uses lead and the, what what happens is that the person who wants to get, get exercised goes and sees one of these experts in quotes <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. and
2: The expert will have this person sit down on a chair and will wrap a big sheet around them then uh, we'll get a large pot, uh, pot of water and we'll have someone hold it over the um, the subject's head. Meanwhile, they will melt some lead in a ladle. And generally, this is done at homes. Um, once the lead is um, melted, then they will pour the lead into this pot of water over the person's head. And... Um, they believe that as the as the molten lead um, touches the water with the, all the steam coming out of it and the sizzles, uh, the gin also will leave that person's body and will um, stop being, uh, creating misfortune for that person. Then they will pick up the lead, which is solidified now because it's it touched the water. And we'll look at that. And again, another inkblot test <laughs> mm. will we'll tell a story about how it looks and, you know, like how, how was you know the jeans features and this and that um but um yeah it's 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 done pretty often um there are people who make this as a profession so there are people who actually uh, melts lead in their kitchen on a daily basis and keeps inhaling the lead fume uh, wow. <laughs> and then uh, i think the saddest part is that um This is mostly down to young women who are looking a suitable husband and uh, they, they believe they're, they're not able to find him because they're, you know, cursed by Jinn. And uh, when the exorcist misses the target, they end up uh, getting really severe burns in their scalps and their faces by um, having a molten lead poured their head, uh, which is a pretty um, sad thing because they become disfigured and it's very painful process.
0: Right. And did you see this yourself when you were a healthcare provider? Yes, I did,
2: unfortunately. I've seen, I remember a couple of people um, coming with, um, and and one of my patients actually lost most of her eyelids.
0: Oh, my God. So are there any other popular Turkish myths or traditions that you'd like to tell us about, Uh, problems with non-skeptical thinking overall?
2: Um, Let me think. I think the biggest one would be creationism. And um, you know, there is this famous graph that everyone shows in creation uh, in in skeptic conferences about creationism, and US is the second worst in the list. Uh, about the percentage of people believing that um, creationism is true and evolution is a lie, uh, you know who's the first first countries <laughs> first worst?
0: I think I can guess.
2: <laughs> yeah, we're the only country worse than United States in the world.
0: Well, we thank you for that.
2: Yeah. No, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs>
0: As you said before, <laughs> Turkey exists to make the United States look smart.
2: In this area, yes, for sure. <laughs> uh, and the reason that it's being so uh, bad in, in, from a statistical point of view is that, one, um, the schools are lacking the uh, curriculum to teach um, evolution in a proper way. Right. So even when I was in high school, I learned evolution in such a horrible and incomplete way. I was not sure it made sense. So the evolution is thought at schools along with other creation myths. Um, so, for for example, when you look at uh, when you look at books in uh, in Turkey in school curriculum when they're talking about the start of life in the world um they will talk about both panspermia abi- abiogenesis and creationism and then evolution and even they talk about lamarck now so uh, oh, wow so it's like oh there are all these you know all these theories out there we don't know which one is true but by the way there is also this like creationism and we you know this is what's in the in the holly book and and uh, because it's so Taught is so shallow people believe whatever they pick and the one that is with the creationism has the biggest propaganda out there so
0: so they just sort of present them all in the class as if they nobody really knows and they're all kind of equal in their evidence and then there are other forces in society that kind of lean people toward creationism. exactly wow yes. there's also one uh, very outspoken uh, television personality there,
2: right? Yeah, we. there is a very famous t- Turkish creationist who um, keeps writing writing books and he has multiple of them now and s- keeps sending his copies to evolutionary scientists across the world. Uh, his name is Harun Yahya and he's the writer of um, Atlas uh, of Creation, uh, which is a book called Filled with a lot of pictures and every page essentially says the same thing, you know, evolution never happened. Um, so he's, he's the biggest um, proponent of creationism and he's very rich, so he's able to um, display a lot of uh, propaganda materials in in many places.
0: Isn't he the one who had a picture of a fishing lure in his book? Yes. I thought so, and he was presenting it as if it were some sort of evidence for creationism or something. And then someone looked very closely at it and said, "That's not even a real creature; that's a fishing lure." Exactly,
2: and and there was a blog post in Richard Dawkins' website about this, uh, how he made a uh, fool of himself by putting a picture of, you know, fake animal, and claiming that the animal never changed because, therefore, no evolution. <laughs>
0: And we thought the banana was bad, the (laughs) banana man.
2: (laughs) Well, I think they're equally bad. (laughs) Yeah. But um, this is a very powerful person, and he was the person behind uh, more than one-and-a-half-year ban of Richard Dawkins' website in Turkey. Wow. Yep.
0: Uh, probably everyone listening right now knows the name Dr. Mehmet Oz as well, and he has a wildly popular TV show right here in the U.S., thanks to one of his biggest supporters, Oprah Winfrey, but a lot of us American fans probably are not aware of his connection to Turkey.
2: Correct. Um, Dr. Mehmet Oz is a tur- Turkish-American. He was born in the United States, but his parents are Turkish and they still live in Turkey. So Dr. Mehmet Oz often goes to Turkey and gives some seminars in Turkish, um, the, the, and, and people respect him a lot because he's famous, he's a doctor, he was on te- American TV, and he's like everywhere in media. So anything he says is taken literally as truth. Um, and uh, he has a lot of uh, influence in, in Turkish um, science media reporting, unfortunately. So he will make the headlines very often. So
0: Dr. Oz and Harun Yahya are not the only Turks in the world. We also have you and your husband, <laughs> Um You began. Uh, you came here to the United States. When was that?
2: Um, at the end of 2008, almost 2009.
0: And so how soon after that did you start your blog, Yalan Savar? How did that begin? What was its genesis?
2: Um, I, I think we started our blog in two phases. The first phase was we came to United States. We were always skeptic but didn't know what skepticism was. So we thought that we were just annoying people, ruining fun for people when they are believing something weird. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we used to get a lot of questions or emails from our friends or sometimes chain mails in these old days. And we used to kind of like sit down and write an answer. And this is not true. And did you check this and that? So, um and this was like a in a in a, a daily thing for us. So we came here and uh this this started to get more and more and we decided why don't we build a repository for ourselves so we don't have to write the same email when the same stupid thing comes to our way uh, again and again. So I started to keep like a you know folder with like canned responses to like some of these ridiculous claims. Mm-hmm. Uh, at this time I was also um Uh, we we recently moved here, so I was not working. Uh, And then um, Junaid gave me the idea, why don't you start like a blog and you can put them there so they can be available online. That was the first phase. And we didn't know we were doing this under the definition of skepticism. It was just like a mini project for us. Then uh, we started to learn about the skeptical movement um, and started to get more and more involved in it and realize there are people like, like Uh, us out there and they're not that few and uh, we're not that weird (laughs) (laughs) Um, and uh, we start to learn how people are organizing as skeptics and you know creating a knowledge repository for other people or helping or fighting with scammers and uh, false claims and that gave us a lot of um courage to do something similar. So we took our repository and we started to, com- we converted it to a blog and started to publish things. Um, and soon we had a couple of other people joining us because they were, uh, and they they were living in Turkey and they were feeling and acting exactly like us. And they were looking for a, you know, kindred spirit that feels and acts like them. And they were like, oh, can we join you? And um, we started, we realized that if it turned out to be a great team, and um, the journey we started with two people in our home as our like own database turned out to be a blog with more than uh, one and a half million read, reads, views, uh, 11 authors, and uh, 40,000 followers. Wow. Yes.
0: Congratulations. <laughs> Thank
2: you. And so I know that one
0: of your most popular events that you've done um, is something that I like to refer to as your homeopathic suicide that you did over (laughs) many hours with a lot of people watching to see this crazy woman trying to kill herself, apparently. And so maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. Did you die?
2: (laughs) Yes. And this is a seance. (laughs) Okay.
0: (laughs) So tell us how did that come about and what happened?
2: Sure. Um, So I wrote it. Piece on homeopathy. I think this was um, the the article I wrote was about two years ago, and this was a good timing because homeopathy was something that was just coming to Turkey. So a lot of people didn't know what it was. They thought wow. it was a form of a herbal remedy, and um, so um, so I wrote that piece uh on homeopathy explaining the dilution factor how there is nothing in it and it's just basically water. Um it just sit there for a couple of months and then as the homeopaths started to get you know increase in Turkey it started to get a lot of um, negative comments. Uh and uh, after after a while, after a year or so we had like hundreds of comments there. And one of them was a homeopath and he told me that um I was closed minded I was just doing these claims that homeopathy does not work by looking at the textbook knowledge, uh, but some things are not explained in science. You know the classical, <laughs> uh, classical claims of a soda science supporter, right. um, and I would not know it. It's it's I would not know that it's effective unless I try it, and um, so I said, well, what what for example, what what would you recommend me to take in order to get me convinced to this. Um, So he said well you can take Arsenicum album uh, 100M and you probably will die. I said okay I'll take it. (laughs) Arsenic. (laughs) And Arsenic was the perfect Selection. I mean, he could not have selected something better because everyone knows the word arsenic means poison. Mm. So it had a huge impact on how people perceive this and how it demonstrated that actually it has nothing in it. Uh, so he he asked me to take arsenic 100M first because I think he was thinking that I would back up. Now, what
0: exactly does that mean, arsenic at 100M? How much arsenic were you actually taking?
2: Um, well, in, in that dose, there is basically... No arsenic in, in the solution at all. <laughs> um, and then um, because I immediately said yes, he kind of freaked out because I think this person actually was a delusional. You know, he believed this would work. So he said, OK, I don't want you to die. So I'm going to go a little bit lower dose. Oh, how nice. And then he said, OK, take arsenicum album, 30C. And 30C means that um, the one milliliter of arsenic ha- uh, we'll go through a thirty seed delusion if it is dissolved in 106 light years uh, large cube of water.
0: <laughs> wow!
2: So if you if you think Milky Way galaxy is a hundred thousand light years across, it's about thousand of a Milky Way. If so if you get a big enough container, that big, like 1,000th of a whole Milky Way galaxy, and if you put one milliliter of arsenic in it, that will be 30 C. And that was the low dose that he was, uh, you know, proposing.
0: So there's no, no arsenic in this that you're taking whatsoever. Oh, but, no, nothing. But homeopaths believe that that's okay because whatever solution you put it in, water or otherwise, will retain a memory of this medicine or poison or whatever and will still affect you. So we still believe that you would feel the effects.
2: Yep. They believe that the arsenic, one molecule of arsenic that touched, I don't know, a ze- million uh, water molecules will transfer its- magical properties to that water and that water will be different than the regular water for some reason wow and um, i did this trial with uh, arsenicum album tablets and the way that they do this they they prepare the water first uh, by diluting to like a 10 to the 60 factor and then um, they drop this water into sugar tablets and it's, it's even funnier because, you know, the tablets dry. So whatever water is dropped there is also evaporated. What? <laughs> so,
0: but the magic remains. Yeah,
2: but the memory of, you know, the memory of arsenic remains in sugar molecules. That's what they okay. believe. That's so crazy. I, I don't even, I can't, you know, I can't make myself believe people actually believe that. That's so bizarre. But um, this people, this this person actually believed this. So he said that if I take arsenicum album every hour... And he asked me specifically not to exceed 10 tablets because he was thinking that if I take 10, I will die still. Um, So he asked me to take Arsenicum Album every hour, one tablet. And within every dose, I will start to uh, feel the symptoms that he predicted. And they will increase uh, with every tablet. So he predicted that I I will have suicidal thoughts. I will have chills, burning pains. I will develop tumors in my body. Um, I will have uh, wheezing, I will have edema around my eyes, will have sudden diarrhea and bleeding from my bowels. I will have, I will vomit. Um, I will have an incontinence problem during the trial. I will have an asthma attack and will have arrhythmia (laughs) and will probably have a stroke. I will have my nails, my nails will darken and fall um so and and he also said that i will have aversion to water and not going to be able to drink water uh well that's
0: the least of your problems at this point
2: yeah but you know it turned out to be the best one to show people that what he's telling is the total bs because i (sighs) because i drank like tons of water during the whole videos (laughs) (laughs) and didn't and didn't have uh any incontinence too despite that water
0: Well that they just have to take your word for. But
2: <laughs> yeah, that's So true. you're sitting there
0: and you're videotaping this.
2: Yes, so I woke up uh in the morning, I announced from Twitter. So we oh. announced that we're going to be we're going to taking a challenge provided by a homeopath and we're going to be doing a live uh suicide attempt with the arsenic, which had a huge impact.
0: I can imagine.
2: <laughs> and um so I I woke up and I uh started my computer i recorded myself as i was um opening up the you know the the container that holds the tablets for the first time with the security thing and i and i took the first tablet and i swallow it and i told in the video that i will be doing this in every hour and will count the tablets and will post them in youtube so as soon as i took the first tablet and completed the recording which was only a couple of minutes uh, i posted to youtube and we started to wait until the next hour comes so in the next hour i took the second tablet but me and junaid started to also tell people about you know what is homeopathy in each video so we have 10 videos about you know five to seven minutes long each that gives little bit of information about the homeopathy, the dilution factor, and how it doesn't work, why it doesn't work. In the middle somewhere, we also did a demonstration of, um, of this uh, whole dilution thing with uh, food coloring to let people see like by the time you get to the fourth dilution, which is only like 10 to 4, Um, the whole water turns totally clear
0: that was so smart of you to do that in between (laughs) to not just demonstrate this but to educate people about what you were doing
2: yeah and it was so much fun too i mean it took us 10 hours to do the complete thing but um but it was fun so it was tiring but it was fun and uh, the impact was huge Um, people start to follow us uh, who were not our followers before they start to tweet us um there were a lot of like totally independent blog entries telling about the crazy doctor uh, taking arsenic to prove homeopathy doesn't work online. And uh, after I think the third tablet, and you know, there's 10 hours of difference, people were, you know, um, tweeting us saying that, I have to go to bed, it's so late here, but I'm just wondering, <laughs> are you gonna die? So can you post the next video before I go to bed?
0: If you're not dead yet, would yeah. you mind? Yeah,
2: so it was so much fun. And uh, and the, hilar- the one of the hilarious things was that as we were doing this, obviously nothing was happening. We were just right. like laughing and recording this video. The person who challenged me started to keep, uh, kept commenting on our blog post. He said at the beginning, I mean, his challenge started with that I will die like if I do the 10 tablet. mm mm-hmm. Or will be very sick after fourth or so. And then he changed his narrative to, like, you will die in a couple of days. Mm. And then I'm taking, like, maybe the seventh tablet. He was like, well, maybe you'll be very sick in a couple of days. <laughs> By the time, like, I was in nine, he started to say, well, you might dream of being dead. Oh, wow.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's quite a different story.
2: <laughs> yes. And it was perfect because then people start to make fun of him.
0: Oh beautiful
2: and uh you know at the end he said that i will see the effects in a couple of months and then finally i said to him you know i'm gonna die in like 50 years <laughs> at most and then he can say his prediction was correct
0: so he wins regardless
2: <laughs> regardless if he's around
0: i think we refer to that as moving the goal post right yes Yes. They make a claim, and then when you challenge them and you're getting near to it, then they move the goalpost so you can't win, and they continue yep. moving it. I'm glad that some of the people saw that for what it is.
2: Yep, and this all happened like online, so everybody saw he's moving the goalpost too. And at the end, he started to become so ridiculous. He was like, well, nothing happened to you because you touched the tablets with your hands. Oh, I'm like, excuse please. me. <laughs> and um, I, I kind of knew that this would happen because we we saw it in so many other different you know famous skeptics uh and which was inspired me to do this uh experiences but i'm glad that it actually happened again online in a recordable media so people can see how ridiculous these people are
0: right yeah, I, that's a wonderful story. That's so great. Well, I normally end with a question about where people can go to see your work. It's it's going to be in Turkish, of course, but in case there are any listeners out there who happen to speak Turkish or in Turkey, uh, where can people go to learn more about you and see what you're up
2: to? Um, they can go to uh, our website. It's uh, org And... Um uh, I, I think you will include them in the in the notes, so they can see how it's spelled.
0: Sure, we'll put it in the show notes. Uh,
2: if they want to see a similar talk on on the things that we discussed and see a little bit more, um, I gave a talk this year in Skeptical um, Northern California Science and Skepticism Conference uh, of Bay Area Skeptics, um, and that video of my talk is also online in Bay Area Skeptics YouTube channel, so they can search and see my talk and see some pictures of the things that we talked here today.
0: Great, and we'll link to that video as well. Well, Ishil, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. And I'll see you soon.
2: Yep, thanks so much.
0: The Science Report. We've probably all heard someone described as thinking he can walk on water. For those of us in the Western world, the phrase conjures up images from the Bible. In Matthew, Mark, and John, stories are told of Jesus and momentarily of Peter walking on water as a story of faith, as well as the divine ability of Jesus to be above the powers of nature in the physical world. Christians aren't the only group with water walking in their mythology, of course. Like most stories in the Bible, this one is found in other cultures, too, all around the world. In the Buddhist faith, sariputta tells of walking on water, saying, I lived in ignorance until I heard the voice of the Buddha. As I was anxious to hear the doctrine of salvation, I crossed the river and I walked over its troubled waters because I had faith. Conversely, the story of the old Zen master Huang Po tells of a man walking on water who's perceived as self-serving and not worthy of praise or respect. And even some Native American tribes tell stories of enlightened and powerful ancestors who had the gift of walking on water. Of course, we don't expect to hear stories of people walking on water in the 21st century, but news reports out of China this week offer just that. According to the stories... A monk from the city of Chwinzhou named Shi Li Liang claims to be able to walk on water after many years of practice and enlightenment after his walk on water in front of hundreds of onlookers. Shu said in a recent interview, "People need to trust themselves. I failed five times until I managed to run one hundred eighteen meters successfully." But before you buy that ticket to visit China and learn the secrets to this level of purity and self-control, you might want to take a closer look at the video of Schur's water run. It reveals that, rather than simply running unaided upon the surface of water, Schur actually ran across a series of thin plywood boards connected by strips of cloth floating just above the surface of the reservoir. Although running across these thin wooden boards is doubtless not an easy feat, it's hardly miraculous. Given our mass and the speed at which humans run, the surface tension of water is practically non-existent. Provided with the assistance of these thin wooden platforms, as well as some extra stability from the cloths holding them together, it becomes feasible that one could learn to scurry across them successfully. After many hours of practice, Schur has learned to balance himself upon each platform, and has an intuitive sense of just how long he can remain on one before he must hurl himself to the next before sinking. It's an impressive act, but unlike the biblical and other accounts, it doesn't break the laws of physics. For thousands of years, monks in China and people all around the world have made miraculous claims about their ability to overcome the physical and mental limitations of us mere mortals. But like most other assertions of this kind, shurs are less amazing once you read past the headline. The good news is that Shur says he's using the publicity from these stunts to raise money for poor children to attend school. So even though he may be benefiting from a heavy dose of hyperbole, unlike all those myths of old, at least there's a chance that some good may come of this one.
1: Hi everyone, this is Marilyn, and this week we're launching a brand new feature on Shellshocked, the listener's speak. This week I'm going to answer a message we received from Robert, who says he's been listening since our very first episode. Robert writes, Hey, I love ShellShock so far. I was wondering, where did you come up with the idea for the various segments in the show? Well, Robert, I asked Sheldon about that recently, and here's what he said. When he first conceived of the show, Sheldon thought about the formats of the various podcasts he's listened to and enjoyed the most over the years. He liked the banter and familiar relationship between Stephen Novella and the rogues on the popular Skeptic's Guide to the Universe podcast, which allows listeners to experience what it might be like in a room full of skeptics or at a monthly skeptics in the pub event. Sheldon also knew that podcasts like Point of Inquiry gained a big following by offering interviews with famous scientists, skeptics, and leaders in various fields. He also liked the brief nature of Brian Dunning's Skeptoid podcast because it gives listeners a lot of good skeptical and scientific information in an easy-to-digest format without using up a lot of their time. And he liked the upbeat and positive nature of George Robb's Geologic podcast where you get good skepticism without all the negativity and seriousness that can bring you down. So, the format of the show is really just an emulation of those podcasts. The discussion Sheldon and I have at the beginning of the show is an homage to the SGU. The interview is modeled after Point of Inquiry. The Science Report is a 10-15 to minute segment like Dunning's Skeptoid, and my own Good News segment tries to capture some of the fun and positivity of geologic. Thanks for your question, and please keep listening to the show. Of course, if any of you have ideas for segments or features you'd like to suggest, please contact us through SpeakPipe on Facebook or in an email. This is Marilyn, and we love it when the listeners speak.
0: Well, that's the show, and thanks so much for listening. Just a quick reminder that iTunes and Stitcher aren't the only way to keep up with Shellshocked. You can also visit our website at sheldonhelms.com and click on the RSS feed link. That way, episode links will be made available automatically every time you open your preferred internet browser. Thanks again for all the support and for helping us spread the word about the show. And as always, until next week, you've been shell-shocked.